today I'm going to start with this, my story. So, um, I always like to say my golden years were between two and four years old, because everything was really nice then. And then uh, it went downhill from there. But uh, I grew up in a, in a middle, lower middle class family in Rockville Center, Long Island. And, uh, so I didn't have that inbred anxiety of being in a, in a nasty situation. I don't know what it would be like growing up like that. So I don't have an experience of it. But in the world I was in, there was uh, everything was like brighter than it is now. Everything had a certain lightness to it. I mean light when you looked at it. And the people just struck me as being very vital and happy, all the adults. And uh, when I was playing, that's all that was going on. Because I didn't have a mind wondering if I'd be playing next week. Because I didn't have a concept of time yet. Yeah? I was sort of here because there was no entertaining I could be there. Yeah? And so here wasn't like something I was aware of. Because all there was was awareness of being here. Yeah, it wasn't a, an opposite of a, I could be somewhere else because it hadn't been entertained yet. And when I'd be playing, like I'd standing, staring like this on the ground, and uh, I'd see ants, and there would be, all that was happening was seeing ants. Yeah? There wasn't any narration, I'm seeing ants, and, and will I be seeing ants later on? And I actually used to, I set up this giant epic battle, like the, uh, the Lord of the Rings, in a way. For ants, there was this black ant colony out of a curb in front of my house, and there was a red ant colony across the street, and I got sugar cubes, yeah? And I put the sugar cubes strategically close by, and the red ants came and attacked the black ants. It was this huge epic battle, and I noticed that the red ants could kill a black ant with one red ant, but it took two black ants to kill a red ant. So the red ants seemed to be much stronger than me. So I actually moved the cube closer to the black ants. <laughs> so this was something, and when you'd be playing, it's like, you ever see a dog at the beach, like a Labrador, and you throw that ball, you can do it all freaking day. It never gets bored. Every time, it's like the first time. It's as happy at the 800 toss as it is the first toss. And when you're, if you're playing with little kids, if they turn a corner and you, ah, they start laughing. You can do it 30, 40 times. To us, the, uh, the idea of, oh, I've, this has happened before. This sense that creates this incredible mental boredom. Because you think you know what's going on. Yeah? There's no surprise anymore in life. Unless it's a drastic one like the light behind you as you're driving. Yeah? And then, you know, those surprises. But you're not living in a surprising manner. Or like an alert manner anymore. As soon as... Life is met. It's already been met by your head. Yeah? The head has already figured it out and says, I know what this is, instead of finding out. Back then, I was in that more of that mode of finding out. Yeah? <clears throat> around four or five, <clears throat> I was, it was weird. I was running around the neighbor's yard. We had a little grass between these, our two houses. I think I was three and a half or four. And we were both naked and running around, and just it was just an incredible spontaneity. And then my mother looked out the bath, the kitchen window, and the way she was looking at me, I felt like I was bad for the first time. Yeah, I saw our disapproval in her face, and as soon as that was introduced to my head, my head ran with it. 
my initial sense of me is that I'm bad. Something's wrong. Yeah? I can't put my finger on it, but it's producing a lot of unease. And I, so at this point, it started growing and growing. And six years old, I went to school. And uh, it was unbearable because I thought everyone in the classroom was thinking about me. Yeah? And I thought they were thinking about me like I was thinking about me. And uh, I remember I asked to go to the bathroom, and I stood outside the door, and I was listening in to see if they all started talking about me. This is really the root of the disease. The root of the disease is not drinking, obviously. It's obsession with self. And I believe the real root of it is identification as self. And everyone seeking relief from that. And all I believe all addictions are come from trying to seek relief from yourself. You're trying to get out of yourself. And basically, when I get out of myself, or it looks like it works, that addiction creates its own set of problems. Yeah? And farther and more and more I deal with the addiction, the less and less I'm clear about what's causing it. Yes? So I take myself to be a drug addict, and I think I've got to stop doing drugs. But the drugs were a solution to a, primary, a, a prior problem, which was this unease and discomfort that I grew into. I didn't have it when I was young. I grew into it. Yeah. It coincided with my thought system becoming the dominant force. When I was younger, that wasn't the dominant force. I was living, and the conscious contact with living was pretty clean. And then the thinking about what was happening started to ha occur. And then it, then it became the dominant force. And I, I forgot the conscious contact, and now it was the interpretation of the contact. I was listening to Paul all day, about Paul, yeah. and it, got, it gets unbearable, and I was looking for a relief. I remember I went to school one a day in school, I was walking through the hallway, and a, a girl, I was 11, and a girl said hello to me, and I went, well, I went home and wondered what she meant by it for about five hours. It was such a profound event, because it had so much meaning, it was soaked with meaning. What? If she likes me, what does that mean? If she doesn't like me, what does that mean? And it was just profoundly obsessive. <laughs> so I was sitting there at a very young age looking for a solution. I wanted some relief. So I was playing Little League Baseball, and uh, it was a night game. And my mother wasn't there. I was going to walk home. And some older kids came into the dugout and started drinking beer after the game. And I was still hanging out, and so they gave me my first drink, you know, my first beer. I was about 12 years old, and uh, it really changed everything. My athletic career came to a halt, like a screeching halt. I could care less about playing baseball, yeah, because I'd been just hovering, waiting for a solution to this unbearability, and I found it, a liquid, a liquid one, yeah? When I drank beer, I somewhat forgot about myself. I didn't care what that girl meant by what she said. I didn't care. I didn't care what my batting average was. I mean, when I used to get up to the plate in Little League, if someone got up from the stands, I took it personally. I thought they were leaving because I was up. <laughs> this is just total fucking insanity. I mean, how are you going to handle that? You're going to want relief. And all the relief I was offered was sports and doing this, and none of it worked. But alcohol, it did. So my, actually, my first solution to alcoholism was alcohol. When I drank, I got relief from alcoholism. I didn't know 
<laughs> Obviously, I didn't see the fine print of the contract. Yeah, we'll, we'll deliver you immediate relief, but you're going to pay for 30 years in hell, you know. But the alcoholic of my type is I am willing to pay any consequence tomorrow not to feel uncomfortable right now. It's an imperative. It's like a bell that's constantly ringing. And there's no way, when people are talking to me, all I hear is that bell ringing. Yeah? When counselors were talking to me, all I heard was that bell ringing. It was like a driving force. I have to get out of this moment. I've got to get out of self. So I started to drink and use, and as soon as I started to drink and use, I had a very rude awakening, a, a very rude realization that I have magnetic appeal to people in uniform. When I drink, when I start drinking, a lot of blue shows up, a lot of people in uniform, and they exercise power over me, which I don't particularly like. They sort of ruin the day, basically. And uh, I started to get arrested. At first, it was sort of minor arrests, where I was young enough where they sent me home, you know, to my family, my mother. But after a while, I wasn't getting sent home. I was staying over in jail. And, uh, but as soon as I got out of jail, the same pattern uh, occurred, yeah? And what I found in my life, there's nothing out here sufficient enough to stop me from drinking. And use it just isn't. I can be deterred if I'm in jail, and, and maybe you can beat me up. That, that will deter me, but only for a short period of time. As soon as the situation changes, I'm off again. And I couldn't see, I couldn't see anything that was going on. I didn't realize that my behavior was causing the consequences. I had no idea. So what occurred was I was about 17 years old. I got kicked out of high school when I was 16. And I, I was, my mother, I was living with in a one-family, a two-family home on the first floor with my mother. There was one bedroom. My mother had the bedroom. I, I lived on the Castro, Castro convertible. And uh, she had to work every day. So I was basically living as if it was my house yeah? <laughs> while she was away. So I, there was a room down below her bedroom in the cellar, and there was an entrance on the side. And I made that my little office. I painted it red, and I put those stars and moons that, like, they pick up the light when the light's on, and then when they're off, they shine. And I had Jimi Hendrix posters and Don Quixote picking peyote, and I had all the Jimi Hendrix albums, all his black market albums, and uh, I had a mono stereo <laughs> with two speakers, and I had a little private subroom with a shower curtain. So people wanted to make out and everything, they went in there. <laughs> so here I am, and I'm selling drugs at this time. <laughs> and at the time, I had a thousand hits of LSD in the room. I had, and I had packaged it in Marlboro boxes, 100 hits in each box. And I had a little jewelry box with my stash, which is 500 hits, and all the stuff I liked in the first year of doing drugs, yeah? Masculine and stuff like that, different little things. And so I was walking home this day, and I was going to have people over that night, so I saw a construction light in the middle of the street, you know, uh, blinking on and off to tell you there was a pothole. So I stole that, and I took it home, 
and I stuck it in the middle of the room, and it was like a cheap strobe light. It was just blinking on and off. And all my friends came over, and we all dropped acid. And we were all drinking, and we had run out of grass, so we were like creating bonfires out of the twigs, yeah? And putting a blanket over us and just inhaling just rude smoke with absolutely no ability to change your mind, yeah? It was just twigs, and we are trying to do this. And uh, we were listening to Jimi Hendrix, and <laughs> there's a song by Jimi Hendrix in one of his albums called Third Stone to the Sun. If you turn it slow, he talks on it. Yeah? At least he talked to me on it. <laughs> he used to play it slow, and he'd be talking as if he was an alien visiting the planet. It's called Third Stone to the Sun. It's a pretty cool song. So we were listening to that, and everything was going on, and suddenly there was a big commotion up the stairs. And these policemen broke in, and I w my house was raided, my mother's house was raided, and uh, we got arrested, yeah? So, at this point, where I lived, LSD was sort of like communism, yeah? It was like a big threat to society. So I told them it was speed, and they arrested me and all my friends. We went to jail, and they got released, but I had to stay for about three or four days. Then I got released, and then I got rearrested when the lab report came back. It was LSD, yeah? <laughs> so now I'm in jail again. <laughs> and my face is on the front page of the newspaper, the Daily News and Owl of Rockville Center. <laughs> Paul Hedeman, 185 Maple Avenue, <laughs> has been arrested for the, <laughs> the selling of hallucinogens. <laughs> so after a few days they let me go. And I went home to my room and I went down into the room and the whole room was destroyed. All the albums, the mono speakers were kicked in, the albums were broken. And I, I, had, I went to the little counter where the Marlboro boxes have been and they're gone. But I opened up the jewelry box and there's 500 hits of acid in there with all the stuff I never did. You know, like masculine and stuff. And I'm going, Jesus, what the fuck happened? How did they miss this? You know what I mean? So I put it in a little gray sock, and I went out to my yard. I dug a little hole, and I put it in there. Yeah? I thought it was safe now. And then I went through the process, which maybe you know, where, like, the world of adults just came in. Yeah? I had a mediator between me and the authorities, a guy named Mr. Globinger. I don't know what his idea was. He drove a big Cadillac. Somehow he took me to get a suit and get my hair cut. And then I was now going to go to a lot of court cases, a lot of court appointments. And so my hair is cut, and I'm still out there partying. I'm, we're driving around my friend's Volkswagen, three of us. And uh, we get pulled over by plain clothes cops. So we throw everything out of the car, and we pull over. And when they pull up, we take off. And we rip their door off. We hit their door off. And so we're driving as fast as we can, which isn't fast in the bug. Volkswagen bug. And suddenly we're going down this road, and there's bullets ring out. And there's three, there's three shots, and two of them go right through both windows. And one goes right by my ear. I'm in the front seat and the passenger. And it goes right by my ear, and you think the window would blow out, but it actually blows in Yeah, when it goes through. It, and then all this glass came down. And so me and Paul Riker, we fell to the ground, and I'm saying, let's run. <laughs> he's going, <laughs> he's going, no. And they both have long hair, so they, we give ourselves up. And they both get beaten up because they have long hair. 
and I'm going to court, so I have short hair. But I can see them. I'm handcuffed on a hood of a car, but I can see them getting smacked around. So th again, this happened, and I had four more arrests, like very quickly thereafter. And uh, <laughs> so my family at one point took me to this psychiatric hospital in Amityville, Long Island. No, it's actually, it was farther than there. And it was like rolling green grass and beautiful little houses and nice, like, chaise lounges with classical music playing. I'm saying, yeah, I could stay here. But they didn't, they took, they made an assessment and they said, no, you're going to have to face the charges. So, I had, this was just the beginning of the life. Yes? Because the amount of consequences that kept coming on was just unbelievable. And every time I hit a bottom, I moved in, so to speak. You know what I mean? I made it home. I put curtains up and I invited you over. And then I'd be evicted from that bottom and to another bottom. So this went on until, uh, oh, I went to Florida. I got, after three years, I got released out of probation. And my family had a meeting and they said, hey, listen, we want you to take your show on the road, Paul. And we don't want you to live with mom anymore. <laughs> So I went to Miami, <laughs> 77, and from 77 to 80, I lived in Miami, Florida, and at this point, my idea of success was just not to be arrested, you yeah? That was what I'm hoping for. And I never got arrested in Florida, so that was like the highlight of my career. I did very well there. In 80, I moved to San Francisco, and everything really went downhill really fast. And by 85, I got washed up to a point where I... Uh, I went out and I overdosed on, on heroin, and uh, when I came to, the paramedics were there, but so were the police, and I, they, they came to the hospital with me, and they stayed in the room to about 6 o'clock, but suddenly they left, and I woke up at 8, 8 o'clock, and they were gone, and they released me at 8.30, and while the, the nurse was walking me to the, to the door of the elevator, she looked at me with unbelievable knowledge of me. I mean, she saw me for what I was. I got a certain flavor of it, but I didn't want to look at it too long. Yeah? I didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't acknowledge that or something would have had to happen. So I just said, oh, fuck it, she doesn't know who I am. But she knew exactly what I was. So I went, I got to the elevator, I went down, I went to a friend's house, borrowed some money, bought a six-pack of tolls, and I walked to where I was staying in San Francisco. And uh, the land, I had spent the money for my rent. And I lived with the lady who ran the place. Yeah? So I didn't have the money to pay my rent. And I got there at 10 o'clock in the morning. And she was going to be there at 6. And I thought it was like an alcoholic eternity. Just kicked back, drank all her liquor, used her phone. You know what I mean? And then I started worrying around 5.30. What am I going to do? What am I going to do when she gets here? There was absolutely no planning. It was just, what am I going to do? So I, uh, I left, yeah? And I had, I, a girlfriend of mine, a few months before, had dropped me off at a program called Delancey Street in San Francisco. And I had walked in the building and looked around and, real, and just hightailed it out of there, yeah? But I remembered that place, and I had nowhere to go. And you know what? The hustle was kicked out of me, really. I couldn't pull it off. And I was afraid of being on the streets. So I walked down to this program, and when you walked into this program, there was a bench right on the left side, 
and there was a big desk on the other side, and when you sat on the bench, it was like a signal that you'd lost the game of life, basically, that you were coming over to the sidelines. And then they, they, you have to wait as long as they want for you to wait, and then they'll interview you and see if they want to take you in or not, yes? So I was sitting there, I got there at 6 o'clock at night, and there was a big clock over the desk where all these people were running around. It was more like a hotel lobby thing. Yeah. And uh, I looked at the clock and I said, it's 6 o'clock, and I said, I'm going to give them till 6.30 to see me, or I'm out of here. Yeah. Like, I had a lot of things to do that night. <laughs> you know, I had nowhere to go, I had no pot to piss in, but I'm already putting a requirement on the situation. So, I'm sitting there, at 6.24 they invite me in this little room, and they start asking me questions. And the questions, only one question caught my... Uh, interest, which was, you wanna, do you want to have a place to stay tonight? And that's really what I wanted, yeah? So I said, yeah. And they said, you got to make a two-year commitment. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I said, sure, you know, sure. And so they accepted me into Delancey Street by around 625, and they released me into the mass population with 300 clients in there, yeah? And the amazing thing was, Delancey Street was a big enough buffer between me and me. And I stayed there two years. And I was sober. At least physically, yeah? For two years. I went to college. Uh, I did all this stuff. And actually, I felt a lot better in there. Yeah? A lot better. I had friends and everything like that. And so, but I didn't want to be institutionalized. They asked me if I'd want to stay for five more years. And I was like, no, no. Because they had like a hierarchy. If you stayed there really long, you had cars and you got all these clothes. and It was like really a, a cushy situation, but just sort of institutionalized. Yeah. So I said no, and they said, well, listen, we'll offer you a workout program. If you work out for these four months and fulfill some requirements, you can graduate. And the requirements were getting a job, checking an account, and a car. Yes. And finding a place to live. So I get a job, I get a checking account, I buy an 88 Toyota Corolla, yeah, and uh, I'm working for four months. Save, they're saving my money for me, and then they give me a little allotment to buy lunch and stuff. So I'm right near the four-month mark, and they say, all right, now all you got to do is find a place to live. So I start looking for an apartment in San Francisco, and I find a really nice place with two young girls living there. And I really like the place. It's cheap and I can afford it, but there's like 20 people applying for it, yeah? But at this point, I look pretty good. I have khaki pants and blue blazer, you know? I haven't drank or used in two years. So I'd like to say my realtor is uh, Dr. Jekyll, but Mr. Hyde was going to be moving in. They really like Dr. Jekyll. They said, Dr. Jekyll, you can have a long-term lease here. Come on, move in. And so as soon as I left the Lancy Street, I moved into this place, I went into my little room, and... I had a lot of time on my hands. Yeah? When I got off of work, I had no one telling me what to do. And it seemed like a forever that I couldn't deal with. Yeah. So I started getting antsy very quickly. And that irritability, restlessness, and discontent came over me again. And the advertising started to happen. And the advertising was what I'd been missing for the last two years. It wasn't really specific about like getting run over by cars and shot at. It was more like a romantic, mythical missing. Oh, yeah, I've been really missing a lot. So I bought the advertising. I got into my Toyota Corolla, and I drove to a bar 
that I used to go to called the Rose and Thistle. We used to call it the Nose and Sniffle back then. So, because it was just like a Coke Depot, yeah? So I walked in there, and I believed I could drink. I just couldn't do drugs, yeah? And I, I learned a really harsh lesson that night. When I'm not drinking, narcotics can be really far away, but as soon as I drink, the next thing I do is get loaded, yeah? So there I was, I walk up to the bar, and there's a bartender, and I ask for a beer, but I'm thinking, being self-centered, that he's been getting, like, my newsletters, and I shouldn't have a beer, you know? But he doesn't know me from Adam, so he says, here, he gives me the beer. I drink the first beer, and there's impunity. Nothing happens. Fucking, I'm scot-free. Yeah, oh yeah, this is incredible. I order another beer. Halfway through the second beer, it's not enough for me. I want more. So I look around the room, and I see the same old English dude that used to sell more before, still selling more. So I cop some more, and I went out to my little Toyota Corolla, which I lost two nights later. <laughs> I, did, I got in and did a line of coke, and it was like that movie The Shining with Jack Nicholson, when he comes through the door, here's Johnny. It was just a total possession. The parasite took me back over. It had been held back for two years. That facility and everything that was going on there had kept the parasite contained for two years, but had not killed the parasite. Yes? And as soon as I got, it got me alone, it was back on me again. So I went on a ten-month run. Yeah? And uh, you know what a run's like. You're walking pretty quickly. <laughs> and a few, a few weeks later, you're limping. And then you're, you're crawling. And what I was crawling back to was incomprehensibly demoralizing. Because I'd just gone to college. I'd been sober two years. What the hell happened? So what occurred is, it kept getting worse and worse and worse. And I ended up, I went out on March 17th with my friend's car. I lost his car, St. Patrick's Day. He almost beat me up when I told him I lost his car. And I went through all these little adventures and I ended up in a trailer park outside San Francisco, about two hours north, sitting with someone I didn't know, yeah? Drinking a bottle of vodka called Royal Gate. you have the Royal Gate here? You probably have the Royal Gate, just called something else. It's like Hellman's and Best, Best Foods mayonnaise is the same mayonnaise. We have Best Foods, I think, over there. You have Hellman's. Well, it's a very cheap vodka, yeah? So I'm drinking this vodka with this guy, and I'm looking at him. I don't know who he is. I don't know how he even got there, really. And I look at him, I say, man, this guy, he's got a bulbous nose and varicose veins. I said, this guy's a bum, yeah? But lo and behold, he's looking at me like I was a bum. At least that's how I saw it. And in that moment, that was the moment of clarity. Something happened, yes? I would say, in hindsight, a, a portal opened up, and some juice came in, and the engine of selfing, you know, or self-seeking, it had been on for so long, I didn't know it was on. I just took it to be normal. But in this three minutes, it stopped. My mind became empty, in a sense. And there was no engine of selfing. Yeah? To me, it's surrender, really. And so this happened, and what occurred is, I got a download, and then I, did, I didn't have another drink. And I went out to the phone, and I called Delancey Street. And I asked them if I could come back, but they'd been getting my newsletters. And they said, no, you can't come back. You can come in a month and have an interview. But that doesn't mean you'll get in, yeah? So I called a woman I used to party with, and I asked her to help me and come and pick me up. 
And I sounded very humble and very, you know, defeated. So she agreed, and she drove up the hour and a half. But in that hour and a half, I had an alcoholic recovery, miraculous one. I wanted to get loaded again. The mo moment of clarity was history, and I was just chomping at the bit. And so when I got in her car, I tried to coerce her into buying this, you know, some beer, and then we cop the coke and rent the hotel room, get the dirty magazines. But she had followed that equation with me many times, hadn't been that satisfying for her. So she said, no, we're not doing that tonight. And she says, do you want a place to stay tonight? And it sounded familiar. I go, yeah, I really want a place to stay. And she says, well, you got to go to an AA meeting. Now, to me, this sounded like incredible progress, because the last time I had that deal, I made a two-year commitment. She's asking for one night. So I said, all right, I'll go to the meeting. She took me to my first meeting. It was a Salvation Army meeting, March 21st, 1988. And I've been clean and sober ever since. Yeah. So when I got to that meeting, that little portal for five minutes has produced a solution that's been active for 23 years. That little portal, that little grace, that little drip of grace that came through my, my weather front of denial, broke through and just dropped into this little action figure produce an effect that's been still alive for 23 years, yeah? So I went to my first, I went to the first meeting, and when I left, I went to her house, and I tried to go to sleep, and when I finally fell asleep, the miracle actually happened, yeah? When I woke up, the compulsion to want to escape had dimmed down, yeah? And I could entertain another option. And I realized I can't wait to 8 o'clock to get to a meeting. So I called AA, and they told me there's one at 12. So I went to my next meeting at 12 o'clock, and that, that's what set the whole thing going. Yeah? And what happened in AA, when I walked in, I felt hope that first night. And it allowed me to feel how hopeless I'd been. And it was an extreme level of hopelessness. Yeah? My denial had to work super hard to keep it at bay. But when it broke, and I felt it, yeah? And the only, the only reason why I was allowed to feel it was the hope that I got at that meeting. And I went, so from that day on, I started to realize, I looked at the program and I understood the description of the dilemma. Yeah? And I realized that I'm powerless over alcohol, but really the activity of the disease is managing. Yeah? Because I haven't drank in 20-something years, but the disease can still be active today because of the desire to manage and control with the belief that if you could only do it better, everything would be great. Yeah? We're holding out. We really are. There's always a sort of reservation of selfing that keeps us from abandoning ourselves to the higher power. Because there's still this belief that someday I believe it can get better. And I'll be the cause of that getting better. <laughs> <laughs> first step, I realized I had been in Delancey Street for two years. I don't like them. I didn't like what happened there, but I had to admit that my life looked better with them running it than it ever did with me running it. Yeah? So I got the, the, a deep experience of the third step. I had turned my will and my life over to Delancey Street. And they, my life looked a whole lot better with them telling me what to do than with me telling me what to do. And I swear I could turn my life over, well not to everyone in this room, but I should turn my life over to most of you, and you do a better job of it with it than me. Yeah? It seems weird. It would seem that your interest would promote your life, but in the case of alcoholism, your interest defeats your life. Yeah? 
So I came to believe, which to me is an observational step. Yeah? You take the suggestions, you're in the program, and after a period of time, you see the, the results, so you come to believe that a power greater than yourself is restoring you to sanity because you're being restored to sanity. It's not like a belief I have, I see it. Yeah? So I, it's an observational step to me. But the third step, we were talking about it last night, I never realized the importance of, or the emphasis of the quit playing God. Yeah? Because if, if let's say, your disease is really identification as self, yeah? as self, not an obsession with it, but as self, yes? Then if you're, you're taking yourself to be what the conditional mind presents as you, and that does the third step, that's playing God. The self will be the bigger power than the God that you turn your life over to. And then you'll have the experience of being able to frequently take it back. Yeah? I surrendered, but then I took it back and I surrendered. But if you realize that there's a possibility to surrender to a power, right, of its own understanding, not of your understanding, because your understanding may be framed in self, yeah? And if it is, if it is framed in self, then the God that self has a conception of is going to be a weaker God than the self. And when you most need it, it won't be there. Maybe it'll get you parking spaces at meetings, and maybe you'll get a date, and a couple other things, but a radical shift into freedom isn't going to be available. So, when I started to looking at this program, first I was involved with the obsession with self. I realized that was going on. K. Paul was playing 24-7. It was incessant and tons of commercials, yes? <laughs> Proving, telling, if you do this, you'll get that. If you go here, this will happen. If you meet this person, everything will be great, constantly. But there was no immediate delivery of what it was promising, yeah? If I called and asked, let's get that delivery of happy, joyous, and free today. Oh, no, 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 no. No, you're on the layaway plan, yeah? We got a, we got a big, extensive plan you've got to follow for that to be delivered. Yes, it was insane. And after the years I've been in the program, all the more and more I see, like I went to, I talked, did a talk in Chicago, and a guy shared with me that there was a psychiatrist who wasn't in AA, who did his master's, a thesis on AA, and he said it can be all boiled down to one thing. They're just people trying to learn how to stop playing God. They're trying to learn how to stop playing God. Yeah? And I love it because in a sense, that to me is the real activity of the disease now. Yes? One of its solutions may be to get drunk and to get high, but the activity, high or not high, is active. The selfing is going on, be it with the alcohol, without the alcohol. Yes? So when you look at the first step and you think, oh, I'm powerless over alcohol and that caused my life to be unmanageable, I don't believe that to be the case. You've got to look at the other step and how it works where it says, being convinced of these three pertinent ideas, and the first idea is that we're alcoholic and cannot manage our own lives. Yes? It's not the drinking and the drugs cause the unmanageability, it's the alcoholism that's unmanageable. Yes? Why? Because it's managing. Why my life was unmanageable, I found out, was because I was attempting to manage it. When I surrendered my life, somehow, miraculously, it got manageable. Yeah? When I take it back, it seems to get unmanageable. 
people aren't doing what I want them to do. Yeah? When I surrender, it gets manageable again. you got to see it. <laughs> if you would just stay and surrendered, if you really were sober in God, what this disease is like, and to really see its quote-unquote modus operandi, it would sober your mind up. You have the ability to be convinced. And when you get to a point of being convinced, then experience of freedom here becomes states after a while. Yeah? Instead of surrender and then not surrender and then surrender again, surrender becomes a way of living. Yeah? In other words, your mind has understood something. There's no more fooling it. Yeah? It realizes the, the severity of the disease. And there's no way in hell. Like for years, I've never, in the, in the circle of my solution, alcohol and drugs has never appeared for years. Yeah? Even though my mind may be climbing up a wall, it never goes to a bottle or to a syringe. It realizes patently, completely, that that is no, that is no solution. Not no, no, no solution. Yeah? When you ha and you have the ability to be convinced. Yeah? Why is it that it takes so much demonstration for us to be convinced in this program? It, could, it should have just taken one night out there. I could have seen the whole picture of how it was going to develop. I didn't have to live the development of the Polaroid. I saw it. The first night I get arrested. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's how it went. Me drink, consequences ensue. <laughs> I get lorded over by some other power. I get fucking pissed, get angry, and do the same thing again, only to be lorded over by the power. Yeah? <laughs> I tell... I remember one night, I, I took a cab, and I didn't want to pay for it. It was $7. I was loaded. Unbeknownst to me, the cab driver was driving me to the police station in North Beach, in, in San Francisco. So by the time I came to my senses, I had arrived at the police station, and the police were coming out to take me out of the cab. This was for $7. I decide that they must be making a mistake. They don't know who I am, you know, this incredible <laughs> sense of entitlement. But they knew very well who I was, and I was bothering them so much, they took me in the cell by myself, and when they were putting me in there, they, they need me in my ribs, and cracked two ribs, and wouldn't get any help. I had to lay there, try to lay there, for like nine hours before they released me in the morning, and I was fucking in an incredible amount of pain. Yeah? Over a $7 fee. <laughs> <laughs> Over a seven dollar fare. <laughs> this is like, hey, I've been ridden, run over twice in one night. Look at this thing. I was one night when I was out there. It was June thirtieth. You're from the east. June thirtieth in Long Island, freezing on a Sunday night. I went to a bar that I used to go to. There was only two people in there: the waitress and the bartender. <laughs> I had a quaalude, drank some Grand Meunier, left, basically calling it the n a night. I got home, the parasite <laughs> was wide awake, started advertising, I may be missing something. <laughs> like a big party broke out, you know what I mean, down there. So I got back in my sister's, because I didn't have my own car, I didn't have a car, I got back in my sister's car, drove down there, expecting to go into a bar to a big party. And as I was crossing the street, I got run over by a drunk driver. He hit me, didn't know what he hit, so he backed up over me. Yeah? I never made it to the bar, but I found out later there were still only two people in there. 
Yeah. <laughs> it changed the direction of my physical life to this day. <laughs> this is the insanity of alcoholism, untreated. And the way it's being treated by us is actually feeding it in most cases. So, I was introduced to the fourth step, and I did the fourth step. I gotta fill up time. This. To me, what I share here, really, other than the story, is an invitation. It's not a dissertation. Yeah? It's just telling you a message, and there it goes. It's like a very quick delivery. To go over it and over it and over it, it's sort of like when your car dies, and you take off the air filter, and you put a couple of drops in the carburetor, and it starts. You don't keep pouring the gas in. Yes? All you need is a little bit of an entertainment. All you need is a little possibility to be introduced, almost like a spiritual subpoena. And you've been served already, yes? The subpoena's been served, and then you'll see something will start shifting, yes? All the mind needs is the mind's ability to entertain is unbelievable. But sometimes, because it's entertaining from the point of view of self, it's a, what it can entertain is very limited. This is about, you may not be that self, which so when the mind entertains, hey, I may not be that, it starts having a larger field of possibilities it can entertain. In other words, it can entertain, hey, I'm okay now. You know? It can entertain, why am I trying to get in the moment? Because I can't actually get out of the moment. <laughs> and really, at a one point, you'll entertain, I don't need to get out of self because it's impossible that I ever was in self. It's impossible that we're in self. It can appear to be, but it can never actually occur. Yes? Spirit, nothingness, cannot take a single form and forget its nature. Only in our head do we think that's possible. That's why all these other things become possible. The possibility that you can be out of a moment is totally insane. You've never been out of one moment in your life, ever. If you saw the film of your life, you were in every frame. But you sit, we sit here thinking we can be out of the moment. Most, some of us are sitting here now, and we're not responding to what's happening here. We're reacting to what's not happening. We go up into the, up the ass of self, into that little porno theater, and we get absorbed in the story about us. Stretched into time, so it can go on and on and on. Yet the real story of you is immediately in timeless awareness now. Yeah? So what you're looking for is what's looking. Right at this very moment. Yeah? It's not called you. I would say the same energy that's looking out of these eyes is looking out of those eyes. Yeah? When the mental process feels that conscious contact, it claims it and says, it's me that's in conscious contact. I'm seeing but have you ever seen a dead body that you used to know? Have you ever gone to a wake where you saw the person you knew? It happened to me when I was nine. My uncle Fred died and my mother took me to the funeral. And they walked me by the casket. And I looked into the casket to say goodbye to Uncle Fred. But it had a very strong hit. That ain't Uncle Fred. It was just a body. Yeah? What animated Uncle Fred, I took to be the body. But without the animation, it was obvious that wasn't Uncle Fred, the body. And I was taking him to be a body because I was taking me to be a body. Yes? 
But when I saw that, it was like a Zen bitch slap, really. It hit me. It came later, the information, but it hit me. That's not Uncle Fred. And you could take up, if you were dead now and you took an eye out of your head and put it in a live body, it would see. But in that dead body, it's not seeing. So do you believe the eyes actually see? Or is there something facilitating the eye that's seeing? Isn't there an, uh, something that allows you to see all the thoughts about you? Yeah? Isn't there? If you weren't conscious, would you notice the thoughts going on in your head? Because you can't see them out here. Yeah? They're not what we call things. They are things, but not in that way we think. You can't see them, can you? But you're aware of them. Yeah? Maybe you have that awareness of the thoughts. Not a thought that you're aware of the thoughts, which is a thought. You are a thought, yeah? But maybe you're the awareness. So when you're watching something talk about you, or you believe you're doing it, what's bringing that to you? How can you see that? What You're an appearance as something other than what you are. We're taking an appearance to be us, and in that identification, we forget what we are. And basically, we're basically looking for it the rest of our lives. If you notice, most people are in seeking mode. They're constantly looking. There's never a place to rest. Even when they arrive where they wanted to be, it's soon not to be what they wanted. It gets a scratch, or the painting gets dull, or you think, oh, I know her. Yeah? You're constantly moving, looking, looking, looking. You get a girlfriend, and then it's like, now you got the girlfriend, you're out looking for another girlfriend. Now that you have it, it's, oh, well, that's not, I need a girlfriend. But you have a girlfriend. No, I'm looking for a girlfriend. It's the looking. That's the driving force. So I started, I did the fourth step a couple of times. I saw, I saw the relation between what, you know, my role in it, yeah? Because I noticed most people that are at a bar today, have done the first two columns. They're busily doing them now. They know why they're, you know, they're mad and they know why. That motherfucker, you know, my wife, whatever. They're very clear. But there's no recovery in the first two columns. You have to get to the fourth column where you see your role in it. See, my idea is it's actually not your role in it. <laughs> That's the real radical freedom. It's not your role in it. If you read the book, you may see it in a new light. It says in the inventory process, we said it last night, but I think it's worth to go over again. Self, being convinced, you know, believing with certainty that self is what has defeated us, which already he has separated the two, yes? And like we said last night, if you ask everyone in this room what self defeated them, they, it would be the same answer, mine, self. So self really doesn't have the ability to defeat us, but it ha is given the ability to defeat us when we're identified as it. Yeah? You, see, you know what I mean? Self doesn't have the juice to defeat us, but if we give it our juice by becoming identified with self, it uses that juice to, to produce a defeat in us. And that defeat is that you forget and live as if you're not what you are. You're looking for spirit, but at this point, how are you going to look and find something that you are? It's impossible. It's the perfect place to hide it. Well, you're busy looking for spirit, you're forgetting that what you are is spirit. 
Yeah? And how is that how is that constant forgetting that your spirit developed and held in place? It's in the identification as a self and the selfing, the mind's narration of life based on you being the center. That selfing, the idea, locks you in, and then the narration and the thought system glues you to it. Yeah? So the bondage to self is identification, but the glue that keeps that bondage in place is the obsessive narrative. Yes? The narrative centered in I, me, mine. Yeah? So the bonding is you're identified, but the, what rebonds all day is the narration. It's almost like living with a hypnotist in your head. It's constantly inducing a trance. Yes? The I, me, my trance. And in that trance, you forget that you're here, but what it replaces this here with is a mental here. It looks just like here, but it's not here. It's chock full of past and future. Yeah? So you want to get out of the here. You want relief getting loaded, but you're not really wanting to get out of here. You can't escape here. You can't. I'm sorry to break the news. No matter, you're here. Whatever here it is, you're here. Yeah? But you want to escape the mental here. Yes? You want to get out of the here because in this mental here, there's all these past ideas influencing the here, and there's all these future possibilities. Hey, I may be broke next week. I may be have cancer next month. Yeah? And by entertaining it, yes, after the bondage is in place, the juice that you are now enlivens what's not happening. And it appears to be happening to us. It's a small God plane, because it can't make it appear to be happening to everyone, but it sure can make it appear to be happening to you. I just talked to someone on the phone that they're in their own little private Idaho of hell today. It doesn't, when they share it, it doesn't, I don't see it. It doesn't come over me. Yes? But in their realm, it's as real as real can be. It's so real, it totally eclipses the manifest here. They're not really aware of here. They're totally hyper-aware of the mental here. But in the mental here, it's called here. All the signposts say here. Yeah? All the, like, the, the landscape and the geography says here. All the people say here. But it ain't here. There's a lot of there and then getting poured in there. Yeah? The thing is, when you try to escape from here, this was my, my condition, when I try to escape from here, how this manifested was imprisonment in the here. <laughs> I was busily trying to get out of here, and I ended up being imprisoned here. It's incredible. And every time I got released from a program, again I entered the, the mental here, I wanted to escape, and what happened? I went to another program, in the here. <laughs> and what I finally found out after all these years was my solution is right at the place I've been trying to get away from all my life. Yeah? I just had to, I had to realize I, it had been misnamed. I was in a, like a pseudo here, the mind contrived. And in that, it's a hell. And I'm the only one imprisoned there. And it's very difficult to really get the flavor of it to someone else unless they su they're suffering from the same jailer 
which we have, which is alcoholism. And in this way, when we go to meetings and share how it is to be Paul, it sort of sounds like how it is to be Deb, and how it is to be Mary Ann, and how it is to be Amy. Because the same feeling of being Amy is the same feeling that's being downloaded of being Paul. Yeah? And we start laughing, and we start identifying, and we start feeling a little bit of relief, because one of the major components of the disease is terminally unique. You're not open to any understanding because you think no one can understand your situation. Then you come to meetings and you're hearing people, and like, it was amazing when I heard people who did the same thing I did. That was my biggest secret. And they were talking it openly. And I said, wow, this was like my crown jewel on the mantle of selfie. I was never going to sh- share this with anyone. And people were sharing it in front of 60 people. Yeah? And I realized, Jesus, these aren't my thoughts. What a fucking hallelujah. They're not my thoughts. These aren't my feelings. These aren't my reactions to life. They are expressions of a disease of mind called alcoholism. The disease has taken this opportunity over and it's using it. It's using this opportunity to express into a life. Yeah? And it did it incredibly perfectly. I was a perfect addict and alcoholic. You know, some people become devotees in spirituality. I'd match my devotion to drugs to any spiritual devotee. I was totally devoted to drugs. I'd given everything over to it. I worshipped it. I thought about it constantly. I'd do anything to have it. Yeah? And it was consistently a done deal. So if you look at the inventory and see that maybe, just maybe, when you're looking at resentment, that is an effect of a prior way of looking at life called self-centeredness. Yes? And that effect is being amplified by alcoholism. And so it's actually the state of mind that's causing you to see life as a threat and to resent. Yes? The same thing. We're not experiencing fear. We're actually entertaining anxiety. Most of the time, what we're worried about isn't actually happening, is it? It's all in the mental realm of here. Yeah? And so, we're like miracle workers. You know, in the Bible, when they say Jesus brought Lazarus back to life, and it's like a huge miracle, maybe his highest miracle, you know? But at least Lazarus was alive once. We're bringing effects out of nothing, just by thinking about it. Yeah? I can go to next month and think, so much about what could possibly happen to me, it will produce an effect in this body. I'll be contracted and concerned, and I'll basically check out from Saturday. I'll be into next month. Yeah? And it's a bad weather front that's coming. Bad weather front. So I might as well get high just to preempt it. <laughs> One of my guys just went out this morning in San Francisco. He's a big rock and roll drummer. And, uh, This parasite is an amazing, it's very tenacious, yes? It has the ability to sort of hibernate and wait, yeah? And it will keep, keep on projecting the advertising. It will actually drop thoughts in to get the engine of selfie going. It will drop little insinuations, little ideas, and then the mind will start gravitating and start revolving around it, and you'll get this huge drama going. And sooner or later, 
Its intent is to bring you to a place called fuck it. And when you get to that place, fuck it, it gives you an idea. Let's get loaded. Yes? Let's get loaded. I need relief right now. Fuck it. Fuck my family. Fuck the program. Fuck my sobriety. Fuck the commitment I have. Fuck the job. Fuck it. Fuck it. Yeah? That is not a random event. It's been produced. Yes? All based on the identification with that failed system of thought and interpretation called self-centeredness. Yeah? And you better believe it, it's going to lead you to a fuck it. If you listen to it, it's like the little, what's that, Pied Piper? It plays a little tune, and it's sort of like, oh, I'll just listen to this a little while. It's not going to really go too far. I did it once when I was out there, just before I got sober. I was with my fairy princess at the time. And uh, my head, I was in a cab with her, and my head sort of very nonchalantly said, hey, Paul, why don't you ask where she was last night? Yeah? And I didn't think that was a really good idea. But I, it just said, oh, come on, I'll just come out for a little while. I just wanted, let's just ask, what's, what's the harm? What harm could be done? So I said, no, no, no. I was like, no, no. Oh, come on, come on. So I said, all right. Hey, Wendy, Wendy, where were you last night? Three days later, I'm knocking on her door asking for the shoes I bought her back. <laughs> the whole relationship exploded. It just had a life of its own. Yeah? It just went, oh. I mean, it was like, it was like the unfurling of a... a, a a flag of hell <laughs> just went on and on and on and on and on. <laughs> this is how it is. If it doesn't have you, it's attempting to convince you. Yes? It's either in two, st two relationships with you. When it has you, it doesn't give a flying fuck what you're thinking. You're going to do what it wants to do. If it doesn't have you completely, it tries to convince you. It's like that speaking snake in the Bible. It starts it wraps around things about your life and starts giving you a very strange angle on it. You know, they're out to fucking get you. Oh, I don't... Life isn't worth anything anymore. I just don't feel... It's never going to be this, yes? And then it leads you to that fuck it. And as soon as you drink or use, the genie's out of the bottle. Yeah? It now, instead of just being in the mental hell, it manifests here. Yes? You've given it license to come out. Yes? Right now, it could be in the mental health. That's, there it can be stopped. But as soon as it gets access out here, it's going to cause a lot of trouble. And you're going to be the one who has to clean it up or avoid cleaning it up. Yeah? It's like the genie comes out of the bottle and then it's on, full on. And it rides you until you get exhausted or maybe it gives you a little break because it doesn't want to kill you because you're a toast, but it's going to run you pretty bad, pretty ragged. And then you live in the fear of its occupation again. Yeah? Because you haven't met a power greater than it. And the only thing it respects is a power greater than it. It doesn't respect you. You're totally subservient to it. But it respects a power greater than it. And this is what AA has offered us. It offers us an access point to access a power greater than self. So it's not about me learning how to manage better. It's about a deep admittance that I'm overwhelmed here. I'm, I'm, I'm overmatched. I can spend, it takes only one an hour to ruin 17 years of sobriety. Just like a house. You can ruin a house in one minute. It takes maybe three months to build it. This one leans on the, that negative side. 
it can wipe away everything so quickly. Yeah, all that you thought you built around you, or boy, I would actually life you will let life build something around you can be dismissed, just like this dude today. Already, if the hell he's in the hell, because he thinks I'm one of those types that's never going to get it. It's fucking. I've heard that tons of times. You think it's a novel idea that just came to him? It's one of the two loops of that tape called alcoholism. I've been in here 23 years. I've heard almost every loop that the mind can play on that fucking spool. And yet you're hearing it as if it's about you. And it's so personal. And it isn't personal. That's if you actually see it. It's like it's a lousy movie. It's the audience that gives it its, it's like technicolor. It's your believing in it, yes? How else could false evidence appear real? You have an ability to see false evidence as appearing real. That's the power that we represent. But to give that power over to this, and then let that, that parasite lord over you with that, your own power, is I'm totally insane. It's like a form of slavery. Even when you seem to be in recovery, you're on pins and needles. When's it going to happen? When am I going to go out? When's the fuck it going to arise again? Yeah? How can you enjoy peace of mind if you think it's unstable? I mean, in a way, getting sober is just a form. It's like, a, it's like a one plank in the platform. It's a very important plank. But the getting sober, obviously, is just to stop the consequences because when you're totally in the consequential level, you have no idea what's going on. You're never going to be able to follow it back to its hole. You're not going to see where it comes from. You're not. You're going to think other people are doing it to you. You're going to be blaming and rationalizing and excusing. Yes? But you have to get sober so that the possibility to entertain something else, to come out of a survival mode, to get to the point where you can actually enjoy peace of mind, that you can live a life, doesn't f come from the not drinking and the not using, it comes from the treatment on the act of alcoholism. And that treatment has to be administered by a power greater than it. If you administer the treatment, it's not going to have any long-lasting effect. Yeah? If you and I are identified in that system self, we're all unhealed healers. We're all attempting to heal, but we're unhealed. We're unhealed every moment we're attempting to heal. Because you don't think the parasite can adopt to a recovered life? I've seen the parasite, I've seen the selfing in ashrams, spiritual ashrams. I've seen it dressed in white with a really nice smell, with lotuses all around. I've seen the same, same mental system in temples that I've seen on 6th Street and Market in San Francisco. They're just different versions of it. What allows, humbly, humbly, I'm serious. What allows the takeover, let's forget about all the particulars, but what allows the takeover is the selfing able to access your life by identification as. Your defeat is sort of homegrown. Yeah? It comes from right where you're sitting. If that uh, 
it's awesome when it changes. When your life has now been surrendered to a power greater than it, just like you are an expression of alcoholism and addiction, you'll be an expression of some benign force. Yeah? And you'll be the better for it. You'll see the value in doing service. We're out there, when I was out there, fuck fucking service. It was me, 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 me. You'll see the wise ones in this program realize service is a value. It's an incredible gift to be able to do service. You've got to see the love that's manifesting through AA. Because if the dilemma is this occupation in self, AA has a constant opportunity to do service, to get out of self. There's always alcoholics coming. Yeah? There's always alcoholics to, persist, to put yourself in a position where when you two meet, a loving God expresses itself through you. You access a power you can't access on your own. Yeah? If you get enough of that access, you'll come to see that maybe the base that you are is that thing you thought you were accessing. Maybe, just maybe, it will shift from I'm having a, a relationship with a spiritual power than to see that you're a spiritual power. Yeah? And that all that's happening here is like a seed assignment. Yeah? You have a seed assignment. And you're thinking about what the seed assignment entails is probably way fucking off. But you'll, it will be revealed to you. You will find out about it by living. Yeah? The translation will happen here. You'll see, quote-unquote, your purpose in the purposing of it. It's an activity. You haven't been ordained. You are a possibility. You'll be taken over either way. Do you believe you're a separate, independent entity that has its own reality? You and I are like a, an access or a threshold to something that can't be seen so that it can manifest as an effect here. And you know what? If you surrender to a higher power, you're going to sense, you'll know it by its roots. You'll see it by how it manifests. You can never see it because it's not a body. It's not like you as this. It's like you as what you really are. But you'll know, that you'll know it by its fruits. You'll see it by its manifestations. You'll have an intimate knowledge of it because you all found out what it's like to be taken over by spirit. Sometimes I get overwhelmed by the suffering of alcoholism. And it seems like the freedom is available. It's just that the mind can't entertain it the way it's set up. If you entertain it from self, you'll be thinking about a freedom for you or as you. But the freedom is really from you. Yeah. The freedom is when, in a sense, what was so dominant starts seeming to be absent. Your interest and attention isn't wedded to the narration of you fucking every day, and everything that happens isn't pertaining to you all the time. You start to have long glimpses of life is just happening. Yeah, it's happening. It's not happening to you. That's an interpretation. Life is happening, and you are you are part of that happening. But I don't know. Let me think about it. 
think I'll surrender, but if I don't get what I want, I'll take it back. Yes, this is going to be a surrender on an installment plan. If I get the appliances, I'll, I'll sign up for another month. That's not what abandonment is. In some respects, it's not easy because the mind cherishes self. It really wants to be a someone. It's holding out to be special as if. But if you hold on to your seat, all of its shenanigans are temporal. They don't, they don't last forever. Yes? And what you are does. So you can outweigh it. You can sit in silence and stillness and see all the fucking activity and yet not give yourself over to it. Because you've been giving yourself to something else. You know, if suffering was like a, a stock part of this place, then I wouldn't have so much sadness. But it's an option. That's one thing our participation can lessen or increase. Not pain. Pain happens but the suffering, the mental suffering. I've seen people, they look really good, and then they go back out, and they still may look good for a while, but they're rotten inside. Parasites made a home, another home. They can't think of it as being about someone else. It's just consumed. I mean, you know, mind is light. Mind is light. To have light focused on an object with that magnification of self-obsession is going to burn the object. This cannot withstand so much attention. It's a, it's a vehicle. It's not a fucking trophy that you just stare and wonder about all day. It's a vehicle for an expression. But the selfing, you're thinking you're really engaged in thinking about something else, but the magnification's this way. All that's getting really magnified is the idea of being a you thinking about something else. Yes? Everything, everything that's claimed by selfing, is be it becomes a, a mirror-like surface, so the selfie can get a reflection of itself. It's like a constant pool of narcissus looking at itself all day. So everything that happens, I did it. Everything that was thought, my thoughts, my body. It's just an unbelievable sucking, like a, a vacuum of interest and attention, and put on a very unsturdy object. There is a solution, and that's the thing that kills me. The reluctance to take it just blows my mind. It really does. It's like Nero, you know, fiddling in Rome while it was burning. 
<laughs> a, lot of, a lot of times I see people, and I see, I, and myself at times, when back then, it was like you're sitting in the meeting, fiddling. You're not, you're just sucking up what's not happening. And don't realize the sobriety is an activity. Yeah? You're not sober as a, as a condition. It's a, it's a, a verb. Yeah? Freedom is a verb. No one has freedom. If that's, if you had freedom, that's not freedom. It's freedom from having. Yeah. That's the beauty of it. You get, you get economized. You get pared down. And then you're open to be used. And that's the joy. you're feeling like you're suffering, you feel like your house is burning down, get a pail of water. Yeah? Don't use a philosophy. Say, there's no me and there's no house. It's not going to work. Fucking deal with whatever you're taking to be real. With the, with the understanding it may not be. Yeah? But when you're burning, you better get a pail of water. That's what AA is. AA is a life of correction. It will correct, yeah? When there's a, like a leaning into the lane of self, it corrects you. Like those little bump, those little things, when you hit them, they make us noise and you stay in the, sort of like that. AA has all these ways, so when you start swerving on the highway of life, it, coo -coo -coo, you hear it, you wake up, you, you know, go to a meeting or call somebody up or do service, yeah? And so that you can get a feel of what it's like to be safe, yes? So that incessant survival mode can lift a little bit and your mind can entertain what it's truly like and what the mind is truly like is not hindered or confined it's like it's like the sky it's just open things appear in it but none of those things affect it that's what you are actually like you're like a very wide open space that tons of things have the possibility of appearing in it but none of them have a lasting effect on the space. The space is the reality. Not what shows up in it, but the space that allows what shows up. That's the reality. Yeah. So, I don't know. <laughs> There's a lot of sorrow in alcoholism, I'm telling you go to one meeting and it's like millions of fucking un unspent tears. We could entertain the possibility. See, if you're identified as self, you can't entertain being clear. It's impossible. Because you think you're it. If you entertain, maybe I'm not self, the next thing your mind can start entertaining is, hey, I can be free of it. Not therapize it. Not make peace with it. Not you know, cohabitate a life with it. You know what I mean? Not, I'll give you a lot of space, self, but give me a little. Yeah, maybe it will, but it'll be less and less and less and less and less. But actually radically free. Yeah. Free from the bondage to self. It's the bondage. It's not self. It's the bondage. And the bondage is the mind's act of being identified as a self. 
all the thinking is just to keep the glue in place. Yes. It's like you, really, it's like you have a trance maker every day. <laughs> just like, let's say you have a problem, you go home and think about it. What happens? It spawns 15 other problems. It's a failed system. Any life run on this system of self, it's, it's a failure in a certain level because it's a failed system. How can you expect a failed system to work? Its nature is inherently, it's flawed. It's not going to be fixed. That's its inherent nature. Like the, it says the underlying, what was it in AA? It says, let's find the underlying nature of our wrongs. The underlying nature of the wrong that you may call reliance on self is that its underlying nature is that it's unreliable. It's not going to be rehabilitated to be reliable. It's, that's its nature. It's unreliable. When you get sober around that, there's a solution. But not for you. There's just a solution. If you access it as a you, it'll be a problem, probably. You'll make, you'll have a great one day, you'll have feel like total peace, and then the rest of your life the narration was, every moment sucks because I, I lost that one day. So it'll use its own absence to beat the shit out of yourself. <laughs> so, I want to thank everybody for hanging in there. Can we end it? Who's running the show? Yeah, we'll do what? Oh, we'll take a break and then come back. Yes. I have to get myself together. <laughs> <laughs>